Let's get into the Word of God. I'm excited about our passage today. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. No, we have not gotten all the way to chapter 4 yet. Verse 4 to 7. That's going to be our, our text. 4 to 7. Okay, the, the message title is The Futility of Obtaining Salvation by the Flesh. The Futility of Obtaining Salvation by the Flesh. And that's what we're going to see as Paul reveals his, his testimony of what God did in his life. Salvation, Salvation by the flesh. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Lord, I pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we come. Lord, it doesn't matter um, if there are many or if there are few. Lord, you are in our midst. That's the most important thing, Lord. You are present with us. And your word has been given to us. And we have the blessed opportunity of opening it up, Lord, and receiving the truth of the Word of God today to do a work in our hearts and to purge us from error and to enlighten us and give us truth. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be the case today. May your Spirit come. May He minister the Word of God to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians chapter 3. Let's pick it up at the beginning of the chapter. But our text is going to start in verse 4. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We continue our exposition in the book of Philippians today. Last Sunday, we discussed three marks of a true Christian. If you will recall, the three marks of a true Christian is that he worships in the Spirit of God, he glories in Christ Jesus, and he puts no confidence in the flesh. And his last statement there about the fact that the true circumcision puts no confidence in the flesh gives Paul the opportunity to share something of his autobiography, his spiritual autobiography. And that's what he's doing in this passage. He wants to teach the Philippians the futility of the flesh when it comes to obtaining salvation. Paul had sought long and hard in the flesh to earn his salvation and it had got him nowhere. And he wants the Philippians to understand that. In Paul's mind, he could sum up his spiritual life in terms of a profit and loss sheet. Are anybody familiar with a profit and loss sheet for a company? I look at mine all the time. And at the top of it, it tells you all the stuff that had come out, all the money that had come in for the year. And then underneath that, it breaks it down into all your expenses and where it went out. And then at the very bottom, it tells you your total profit for the year. Hopefully, it's in the positive and not the negative. <laughs> well, Paul is saying that all the things, all his religious credentials that he had put his confidence in in the past, he thought they were in the profit column. But when he came to Jesus Christ and met Christ, he cha totally changed his mind about that and took all of those things that he thought were in the prophet column and he moved them to the lost side of the ledger. And we know that because in verse 7, 
He says, but whatever things were gained to me, the word gain there, another, another translation of that word gain is the word profit. Whatever things were profit to me, those things I have counted as loss. So you, you get the picture? All of the things that he was counting on to get him to heaven, and he lists many of those things here, those were in his profit column. These are the things that gave him confidence before God, that he was going to make it. And he came to Jesus Christ, and he, he started to understand, no, no, I had it all wrong. I was trusting in the wrong things. And so he took all of those things that were in the prophet side and he moved it down over here to the lost side. In fact, he doesn't even call them lost. He calls them rubbish. And the Greek word there could be translated as human excrement, dung, manure. <laughs> and anyway, it's not just it has no value. It's, it's, it's negative when it comes to your mind. It's not just neutral. It's negative. So with each new religious accomplishment, Paul felt he was getting closer and closer on gaining heaven, gaining eternal life. He thought that his salvation could be obtained by religious works. But when he met Jesus Christ, he transferred all of the things in his prophet column to the lost column and said they're rubbish, they're dung, they're manure. They're nothing to be counted on, nothing to be trusted in because he had found that Christ was his all in all and that those things were nothing in comparison to what he had in Jesus Christ. They were worthless. Now, Paul puts what he had come to ultimately value. He no longer values that and he values something completely different. He values Jesus Christ. Notice what he values. In verse 8, he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view, and here, here it is, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what he came to value, knowing Christ. And then he talks about it and at the end of verse 8, so that I may, what? Gain Christ, knowing Christ, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, that I might be found in Him. Verse 10, that I might know Him. Do you see the emphasis of where Paul is going with this? He says, all the things I used to think were so special, they're like dung. But the thing that is truly important and valuable to me now is knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ. That is the thing that is the treasure. These other things, it's rubbish. It's garbage. And in fact, he says in verse 9, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So he says there are two types of righteousness in the world. There's a righteousness that is from ourselves. What do you call a righteousness that's from yourself? Self-righteousness. Self There's a self-righteousness and there is a divine righteousness. Self-righteousness depends on you. How you can keep God's law. If you do well at keeping God's law, your self-righteousness increases. And you get puffed up with pride about how well you're doing. But Paul says, I used to have that kind of a righteousness. I don't have it anymore. I've traded it in. It's rubbish. I don't want it. I've got a different kind of righteousness. And it's way better than any righteousness that Paul could have ever achieved for himself. It's God's own righteousness, which is perfect, without any flaw whatsoever. And this righteousness doesn't come to us by obtaining the law or keeping the law. This righteousness comes to us, he says, through faith. It's the righteousness which comes from God as a gift from God on the basis of faith. We are made right with God, right standing with God, not by our law keeping, but through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice, Paul finally came to the position in his life where he, he came to understand that what was important was not his own performance, but a relationship with a person. 
That's why he talks about knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ. Christ was the, the son of his solar system, and everything else in his life was revolving around Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ. So Christianity is not about law-keeping or rule-keeping. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's what it's all about. We'll come back to that later as we wrap up our message today. Now, all of Paul's hard work, all of his religious credentials had not been able to obtain this right standing with God. All of his efforts of the flesh were of no avail. They were worthless. They were futile. That's what he discovered. And so as we move our way through this passage today, we're going to see two different kinds of religious credentials that Paul was counting on. He was putting confidence in these things. There's two kinds. First of all, his religious pedigree. Those are the first four things he lists. And I'll, I'll list them for you. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his religious pedigree. And notice that Paul had really nothing to do with any of those things. His parents are the ones that circumcised him on the eighth day. He didn't decide to be of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, or a Hebrew of Hebrews. He just happened to have that right pedigree. But the last three things are not his religious pedigree, it's his religious performance. And these are things he did choose to do. And they all begin with, as to. And he mentions three areas. Law, zeal, and righteousness. As to law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So Paul did make a decision to be a Pharisee. Paul did decide to persecute the church. And Paul did decide to keep the law of Moses. So he made conscious decisions in those areas of his religious life. So you've got his pedigree first and then his performance and we're going to work our way through both of those areas this morning. So first of all, let's look at his religious pedigree. He says that he was circumcised the eighth day. So what he's saying is that he had gone through the right ritual, circumcision. Now, he makes a point of the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Why would that matter? Is there anything special about the eighth day? Actually, there happens to be something to that. The Bible does speak. God, God was particular about when he wanted infant baby boys to be circumcised. In Genesis 17, verse 12, this is what he said to Abram when he gave Abram the covenant of circumcision. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. And then in Luke chapter 2 verse 21, describing the circumcision of Jesus when he was a baby boy, it says, when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. In other words, Jesus also was circumcised on the eighth day, the very day that God had prescribed. So, circumcision was the God-ordained ritual by which a baby boy, an infant boy, was brought into God's covenant with Israel. He partook of the Abrahamic covenant, and the only way he could do that was by being circumcised. And God commanded it was to be done on the eighth day. Now, if we keep reading in Genesis 17, we already read verse 12, but the next two verses provide that link between circumcision and the covenant. Genesis 17, 13. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Do you hear how the word covenant keeps reappearing? God is linking the covenant that he's making with Abraham to circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of that particular covenant. Now whenever you have a covenant in the Bible, I think almost every time, there might be one instance where I can't find this, but in every covenant, there's a sign. 
like God made a, a covenant with Noah that he would never destroy the world by flood, what was the sign? Yeah, the bow and the clouds. Here it's circumcision. When we have God making a covenant with the people of Israel through Moses, do you know what the, the covenant sign was? This one's a little bit harder. It's the Sabbath day, which might help you understand the Sabbath more. If it's a sign, we usually put it in the category of morality. These ten moral standards that never change, well actually it was a sign. Just like the rainbow, just like circumcision, the Sabbath was a sign that they were the people of God. Which puts it in the category more of ritual than a moral category. That's a whole other sermon. But, and a whole other thing to think through. But anyway, th this is the covenant sign of this particular covenant that God made with Abraham. And if anybody wanted to be included in this covenant that God made with Abraham, they needed to be circumcised. And God said the exact day that he prescribed was the eighth day. Now, Paul was saying, I went through the right ritual. And so he had confidence in his flesh. I was circumcised the eighth day. A lot of people were not. I was. I did it right. Even though he had no choice in the matter. <laughs> it was done before he could even make a decision. And I would say that circumcision to a little baby infant boy is roughly analogous to infant baptism. There are both signs. The people who perform infant baptism today believe that in some way that baby is being brought into a covenant. I disagree with that, but that's what they teach. Um, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, when I was a baby, I was baptized as an infant within the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, I had nothing to do with that. I hadn't repented yet, hadn't believed in Christ, so I think it was worthless. But my parents thought it was important, so they did it for me. But this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about infant baptism. They believe that it brings the forgiveness of sins. You say, well, wait a minute, what sin does that baby have? Original sin. That's what they believe is washed away in infant baptism. And that's why they believe, that's why they teach their, the parents that if your baby is sick and is going to die, you'd better get him baptized immediately because if he's not baptized, his original sin is put to his account and he goes to hell. So they believe that... Infant baptism brings the forgiveness of sins. It grants spiritual rebirth. So they believe in baptismal regeneration. The new birth is brought about through baptism in this doctrine. And they also believe that it makes this infant a member of the church. They also believe it's the means by which that baby receives the Holy Spirit. In other words, salvation is taking place through the sacrament of baptism, according to the Roman Catholic Church. But this particular teaching is not entirely restricted to Catholics. There are many others that believe in infant baptism. You've got Lutherans, Presbyterians, um, Christian Reformed. Many, many of the mainline denominations hold to this particular practice. They may not teach that the baby is saved or born again at the moment of infant baptism, but they do believe that in some sense he's brought into the covenant of which his parents are a part. And that he will either ratify that through his own decision later, or he will reject it and be eliminated from that covenant by his own rejection of Christ later. But for the time being, they believe that he's sort of in this limbo, this period where he's in the covenant as a child. So if any of you were baptized as infants like I was, don't put any stock in that. It's worthless to get you to heaven. In the Bible, baptism was performed on believers who had repented of sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ and wanted to follow him. Okay, the second thing that Paul was putting confidence in was that he was of the nation of Israel. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Why would that be important? Well, because Israel was the one nation on the planet that God had entered into covenant with. He hadn't entered into covenant with any other nation. They were God's chosen people. 
the Jews believed that if they were circumcised, and if they were a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would inherit eternal glory and eternal salvation. So their confidence was in their circumcision and their descent from Abraham. That they, they felt they were golden if they had those two things going on. And of course, they also believed that they needed to perform the sacrifices and keep the law of Moses. Um, but uh, being of the nation of Israel was extremely important to the people of Israel. So not only had he gone through the right ritual, he was of the right nation. And so Paul's confidence in the flesh is getting larger the more he recounts these certain pedigree credentials of his. Third thing he brings up is that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why would that be important? I mean, any of the tribes would, would be sufficient, wouldn't it? <laughs> I believe he's pointing to Benjamin because Benjamin had a unique rank amongst the various tribes of Israel, of the 12 tribes. Benjamin was the youngest son that was born to Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife, which would make Benjamin a favorite child of Jacob, who is also called Israel, a favorite tribe of Israel. When the land was divided later by Lot, and Benjamin got his portion, he received the portion in which Jerusalem was located. And Jerusalem was the, cent the religious center of all of the 12 tribes, of all of Israel. Not only that, but there were only two tribes that remained even somewhat faithful to God. The 10 northern tribes had wicked kings. Every single one of them departed from the Lord. And that's why God judged them. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and conquered them and deported them, led them away in captivity and chains. Only Judah and Benjamin, the southern two tribes, were, were not taken captive by the Assyrians. They were spared for another 140 years until 586 BC. They were finally captured by the Babylonians and led away into exile. But they, were, they did have some good kings. The, the two southern tribes, we call it Judah. Judah did have a few, some good kings. Not all of them were good, but some of them were. Some of them were faithful to the Lord like Josiah and Hezekiah. So he came from one of the two more faithful tribes of Israel. So his confidence in the flesh is growing a little bit more. Not only is he circumcised on the eighth day, not is he of the right nation, but he also came from one of the two best tribes of Israel. And it's also interesting that Paul knew which tribe he was from. Because at this point in history, many people didn't even know what tribe they were from anymore. The genealogies had been lost when they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and so they couldn't really know what tribe they were of because all those records were askew. And not only that, some of the people had intermarried along the way. And through intermarriage, the tribal identity lines were blurred. And what Paul, what Paul is saying is that his family had kept their line pure. There was no interracial marriage going on. He knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And then again, he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And what in the world does that mean? <laughs> it probably means that he was a Hebrew child of two Hebrew parents. He was what? A Hebrew child of two Hebrew parents. Oh. He was pure blood. And this goes even more in depth than that. Many Jews were, were called Hellenistic Jews at this point. A Hellenistic Jew was a Jew by physical descent, but they had adopted the Greek language and the Greek customs. They were scattered throughout the, the Middle East. They weren't all there in Palestine anymore. Many of them were in other Gentile cities. They'd gone to Rome. They'd gone all over the place. And they had accepted the culture and their tradition and the languages of the people that they lived among. Paul said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he still spoke and wrote Hebrew, and that he still embraced and held fast to the traditions, the culture of the Hebrews. 
So he hadn't been corrupted in any way by the Gentile worldliness around him. He had remained true to the Judaistic values that God had given them all along. So how would we apply all of this in terms of Paul's religious pedigree? Paul was of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Every, every next thing he mentions puffs him up a little bit more with spiritual pride because his religious pedigree was paramount. You couldn't compare with Paul. He had it all going for him. His chest could swell with pride. He had a pure religious pedigree. And all of those things speak about his nationality, his rank, and his culture. Now, I think we sometimes in the U.S., can make the very same mistake Paul did. We can take pride and put confidence in the fact that, hey, I'm an American. Aren't all Americans Christians? Maybe that's not the case anymore. But when I was growing up, if you said, I'm an, I mean, from the United States, I'm an American, well, we say, well, isn't the United States a Christian nation? Didn't God shed his grace on us? Aren't we specially favored among all the nations of the world? I mean, that's the idea. That's kind of the idea. I mean, you can't make any claim like that anymore because we're not a Christian agent at all. We're very secular. We're just like the secular nations in Europe. Um, we might be a couple years behind them, but not much. We're an ungodly nation that needs revival at this point. But at one point, people could put some confidence in the fact that, hey, I'm an American. Or maybe not that. Maybe they could put confidence today in their rank like Paul did. Not that they came from the tribe of Benjamin, but that they were a priest, or a preacher, or a missionary, or a pastor, or perhaps a preacher's kid, or a missionary's kid. Or maybe it's not that. Instead of a Hebrew of Hebrews, we might say, I'm, I'm a Christian because I have Christian parents, and I was raised in a Christian family. And so I've got confidence that if anyone's going to go to heaven, surely it's going to be me. It could be, they could also say that I, I'm of the lineage of the pilgrims that came across. Yeah. So, you know, I really am an American of Americans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone has once said, God has no grandchildren. And what they meant by that is that you have to be a child of God or you're not related to him at all. You can't get into heaven by hanging on to the, the coattails of your parents as though their faith is some kind of going to grant you entrance into the kingdom. So my friends, never make the mistake of putting your confidence in your nationality, your rank, your parentage. If you do put your confidence in any of those things, it's going to lead you to eternal damnation. Because none of those things can save you. They're worthless when it comes to your standing before God. So, that's all Paul's religious pedigree. But now let's go over to the things that would comprise his religious performance. What did Paul actually do that he puts confidence in? And remember, these are the things that start with, as to. So the first one is, as to the law. A Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest sect of Judaism in Paul's day. They were the ones that took God's word seriously. Now you never read about them in the Old Testament. And that's because they didn't exist then. They arose during the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. During that intertestamental period. The same way synagogues also arose during that period. Um, but anyway, Pharisees came about during that time. And they were the conservative Jews. You had these other liberal Jews that were raising up. And they were questioning the authority of the word of God and the law of God. And the Pharisees rose up to combat that whole side. Just like sometimes you have liberal Christians and conservative Christians today. But the Pharisees took God's word seriously. They believed it was true. They believed it was inerrant. That it was infallible. Uh, they believed that they needed to guard it and they needed to, to transmit it to future generations and they needed to obey it. A, a Pharisee actually, when he became a Pharisee, he took a public vow saying that he would be bound to the Torah. And so he took observance of God's Mosaic law extremely seriously. 
there were only about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. So if you were a Pharisee, you were one of the elite. Many people didn't want to be Pharisees because they didn't want to live such a strict and demanding life. Because your whole life would be consumed with, with law-keeping if you were a Pharisee. The word Pharisee means separated one. And they were. They had separated themselves from the rank and file of ordinary Jews. And they were the, like the, the spiritual marines of Judaism. <laughs> they were the elite ones. In Acts 23 verse 6, Paul said, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. So his parents were Pharisees. And he was a son of Pharisees. In Acts 26.5, Paul said, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Not only would Pharisees make this public vow that they were going to be bound to the Torah, they also tithed not just their money, but their herbs and their spices. We know from Matthew 23. Uh, we also know that many of them took, made a commitment to, to fast twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So that's, that's a quite high commitment if you're going to fast twice a week. They would pray wherever they happened to be at certain specified times, whether they were in the marketplace or in the temple or at home, wherever they happened to be, they would, they would pray. But Paul says that all of those things that I counted as gain, as profits, I count them now as rubbish, including the fact that I was a Pharisee. It was worthless in my being accepted before God. It was worthless in terms of obtaining my salvation. The next thing he says is, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. A zealous man is somebody who loves God so much that he hates whatever offends God. Paul believed that Christianity offended God. And so Paul was out to destroy Christianity in his zeal for God. That's why he did it. In fact, uh, Jesus said there, a time will come when men will think they're doing God's service when they persecute you. That's exactly what happened with Saul. He went about persecuting the church and he thought he was doing God's service. In Acts 8 verse 1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Timothy, I'm sorry, Stephen, to death. So he approved of the execution of Stephen. In Acts 8.3, it says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So he wasn't content just to give his agreement with putting one notorious Christian, Stephen, to death. He, got in, he actively got his hands dirty. He got involved, and he would go from city to city, dragging off people in chains and taking them off to, the, to prison. In Acts 9.1, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So he's breathing murder. Threats and murder. In Acts 22, 3 and 4, Paul said in his, his own testimony, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And then he says in Acts 26, 9 through 11, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul's forcing these people to blaspheme. He's furiously enraged at them, and he just keeps on pursuing them. It's like he's possessed of a demon or something. He is so caught up in this. I, he had to stamp out Christianity, and he was going to go to the utmost to do it. It's no wonder God chose to save this man and make him a monument of his mercy. <laughs> So Paul had great zeal for God, but his zeal was not in accordance with knowledge. 
And that's what he later claims is true about the Jewish nation in Romans chapter 10. They have a zeal for God, he says, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. Paul was the ultimate one that would stand for zeal without knowledge. In his persecuting of the church, he was actually persecuting Jesus Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. So if anybody was passionate and sincere about their religious convictions, surely it had to have been the Apostle Paul. But that only goes to inform us that salvation is not by passion, it's not by your sincerity, it's not by ritual, it's not by your nationality, it's not by your parentage, it's not by your devotion to the law, it's none of those things. Augustus Toplady knew this, and so when he wrote that great hymn, Rock of Ages, these are some of the words included, could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. So he knew that no matter how zealous a person is, that in and of itself cannot obtain salvation. So we can be zealous in religion and still be headed for eternal damnation. That's what, and this is a very sad thing to me, especially when it comes to non-Christian religious cults. I'll learn about a, a new cult sometimes and, and observe how devoted they are to their leader, especially to their leader, rather than to Christ, and to observing all of the laws and rules he puts in place for them to observe. They, they give up their entire lives for this particular cult, and yet they don't know the truth. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're lost, even though they have great zeal for their particular religion. Did you know that many Jehovah's Witnesses will devote 70 plus hours a month to go around witnessing? 70 hours a month. Now what is that? About 16 to 18 per week. And so they will deliberately take a part-time job rather than a full-time job and live on less money so they have the extra time that they can go around and knock on doors. The problem is they're preaching a false gospel. One that not according to scripture, not according to truth. Now of course they would argue with me on that, but I believe that that's, that is the case. In the end, no matter how many fastings you go through, how much religious works that you perform, it's all a work of the flesh if your confidence is in that rather than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They're building madly, but they're building their house on the sand. And when the storm comes, everything is going to be destroyed because they have the wrong foundation. Paul goes on, one final point of confidence that he had, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now that is an amazing confession to make. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Now, think about the word found. It means that people looked at his life and when they observed Paul's life, they couldn't find anything wrong with how he observed the law. This is not saying Paul was sinless. Paul himself would refute that. He said that he was the chief of sinners later in one of his letters. But it is an amazing confession. Paul would go to great lengths in order to externally, at least, keep God's law. So he was, he was a model Jew, if there ever was one. He was exhibit A of faithful Jew. You could say he was the poster boy for Judaism. If you want to know what a real good Jew was, here's the poster boy. Look at Paul before his conversion. If anybody could ever be saved by law keeping, I think it would have to be Paul. And Paul said it was dung, it was manure compared to what I have in Jesus Christ. It's worthless. We can make the same mistake, can't we? We can reduce Christianity to a certain set of laws that we have to keep. And we can think that the better we do those things, check off those boxes, the more confidence we have that we're saved and we're on our way to heaven. We can have boxes. Read the Bible. Check. Check it off. Pray. Check that one off. 
Witness to someone. Check off your box. Memorize a verse of scripture. Check off that box. Attend church. Check it off. Pay my tithes. Check it off. Just go through all of the list of the boxes that we establish. And if you don't know the word of God well, you can think, well, I'm doing this and this and this and this and this and this. Man, if anyone's going to be saved, it's going to be me. Not, not true. All of those are just a list of new laws that you have created. God didn't create those as laws for you to somehow gain entrance into heaven. And you have put your confidence in the wrong thing instead of putting your confidence in Jesus. You're putting your confidence in yourself and your ability to keep these rules that you have set up for yourself. And the worst part about it is that instead of your time with God and the Word and prayer being something that you look forward to, it will become a duty that you have to endure because you think that you can't get to heaven without doing those things. And so you, you put in your time in prayer and you're looking at your watch. Yeah, I, I said I was going to pray for 30 minutes a day and it's only been 22. I can't stop now, even though I want to. Or I know if I want to get to heaven, I've got to read my Bible every day and I haven't read it and I guess I'll put in five minutes really quick on my way to work. You see, it becomes a duty that you just have to get through. And God doesn't want your time with Him to be a duty that you have to distastefully endure. It's supposed to be the delight of the heart and the soul of the Christian to engage with his God. If we reduce our Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts, you're going to lose your joy. Remember 2022? The watchword for 2022 is to rejoice in the Lord. You can't do that if you reduce your Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. It won't happen. So the truth is no one can be saved by law keeping. We will never be righteous before God by our obedience, not only to the Mosaic law, but to God's word. Even if you did your best to follow all of the imperatives of the epistles and all, all of the things that we're told to do in the New Testament, and you say, okay, I'm going to do that. Well, of course, you won't be able to. But even if in your ignorance, if you thought you were doing great at it, you still couldn't be saved by it. You must be saved by Christ and Christ alone. So let me go back and just summarize what we've discovered so far. Paul said, if anybody has a right to put confidence in the flesh, he has a far greater right to do that. Why? Because he had a religious pedigree. Because he had the right ritual. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the right nation. He was of the nation of Israel. He was of the right tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. He was of the right parentage. He was a Hebrew child of two Hebrew parents. And not only that, he performed religiously well. He had chosen to be a Pharisee, the strictest sect of, of all of Judaism. He was so zealous that he went about trying to put Christians in prison and even to death. And not only that, but he was blameless when people looked at his life in terms of how he kept the, the law of God. So if anybody's getting to heaven by their, their flesh, it was the Apostle Paul. And we can make the same, same mistake today. We can put confidence in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in our country, the fact that we have Christian parents or are raised in a Christian family. We can put confidence in our zealous religious activity, whether that's church attendance, whether that's fastings, whether that's your prayer life, whether that's your devotional life. We can put confidence in the fact that our lives are right while everybody else is doing wrong. But what does all that stuff really amount to? The flesh. Because it all stems back to you. And Paul says, all of that is dung compared to knowing Christ. Do you see the focus? Take your eyes off of what you're doing and what's true about your parentage and all of that. Take your eyes off of that. Get it on Jesus. Your relationship to Christ is what matters. That is what is ultimately valuable in life. Your relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, let's conclude by looking at verse 7. But whatever things were gain, were profit to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What is a Christian? 
A Christian is someone who lets go of everything he had been putting his trust in for salvation, and he clings to Jesus Christ alone. Do you see that? He turns his back on all of the fleshly things that he had been trusting in and counting on, putting confidence in, and now his confidence is in Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. That's how Paul defines it for us in verse 3. He worships in the Spirit of God, he glories in Christ Jesus, and he puts no confidence in the flesh. Well, verses 4 through 6 are an amplification of what it looks like to put confidence in the flesh. And verses 8 through 11 are going to be an amplification of what it looks like to glory in Christ Jesus. See, he's expanding verse 3 for us in verses 4 through 11, and he's helping us to unpack and see what it really means to glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul used to view all of his fleshly credentials as gain, and now he sees all of them as dung, garbage, refuse. It's interesting to get your Bible out and just look at all the different translations and how they translate that views. Refuse, garbage, dung. I mean, it goes through the, the litany of, of all the different things. So what was truly valuable instead of Paul's human attainments? Verse 8, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 8, gaining Christ. Verse 9, being found in Him. Verse 10, knowing Him. The only way a person can obtain salvation is by knowing Christ. And so, as we conclude our time together, that's what I want to challenge you to do, is to put your focus on your relationship with Christ. Knowing Him. Being found in Him. Gaining Him. You see... We can reduce all of Christianity down to one word, Jesus. That's what it is. It's Jesus. And you need to be vitally united to and connected to and abiding in Jesus to be a Christian. That's how this righteousness, which is not from ourselves, comes to us. It's being found in Him that we are righteous if you're outside of Him, you have no righteousness to stand before a holy God and be accepted by Him. Only in Christ can you stand on the day of judgment and receive God's welcome into His eternal kingdom. And once you have Christ, truly have Him, everything else flows out of that. Good works will flow from that relationship to Christ. Obedience to God's word will flow out of that relationship to Christ. Peace and joy will flow from that relationship. Compassion for the lost and a desire to tell people the gospel will, will flow from that relationship to Christ. But if we make the works of the flesh our focus, everything will be turned on its head and misery will flow from that. So don't make the mistake that Paul had made early on in his life of putting confidence in what he did or what was true about him. Make all your confidence in what's true about Jesus and his work on your behalf. So that's my challenge to you this morning. Make knowing Jesus and communing with him your all-consuming passion. Amen. Make communion with him the most important pursuit of your life. It's more important than your relationship with your spouse or your children, your workmates, your neighbors, your fellow Christians. It's more important than your relationship to anybody else in this world. It's more important. And you need to make that more important in your life by pursuing, seeking Him and communing with Him. Make Jesus your son and everything else in your life revolves around Him. It's around the orbit of Jesus. He's the center of everything. Get out of bed, and before you eat or drink or work, seek Jesus. Seek your relationship with Him. Find your all in Him that day. Let Him speak to you from His Word. Open, open up your spiritual ears and say, Lord, give me something today. Speak to me. And as you read, be listening for Jesus to speak. And then write it down so you don't, it doesn't go in one ear and out the other. <laughs> Journal it. Meditate on what he has said. 
Think about it. Walk and talk and pray with the Lord and work out in prayer the things that He's told you in His Word. The only way for us to experience life is in that relationship. We, we can, it's easy, isn't it, as Christians, to, to, try to, to emphasize the wrong things and think that, well, the Christian life is all about doing this and doing that. Well, it's true, those things are important. They're in the Bible, God has told us to do it, we're commanded to do it, yes. Absolutely, we agree with that. But if you focus entirely on that and neglect your relationship with Christ, everything will get out of balance in your life. Because the strength to obey those commands comes out of your relationship. As you abide in Christ, power flows through, from Him through you so that you can do what He's called you to do. And if you don't nurture this relationship side of it, all of this other stuff is going to be shot to hell. It will never happen in your life. You'll find yourself failing in all kinds of areas of your life because the strengthening, spiritual strengthening side comes through relationship. And that can only happen as we pray and we hear Him in His Word and we just spend time with Him. So I'm encouraging all of you, make spending time with Jesus Christ the most important pursuit of your life. That's what it is. We're not doing anything that that is not true. This is the truth. It's more important than video games. It's more important than entertainment. It's more important than TV. It's more important than YouTube. It's more important than anything. And when on the day of judgment you will be glad that you made the most important pursuit of your life knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. So let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, because we are fickle and weak and we tend to wander from the things that are most important. Forgive us, Lord. We repent this morning of putting anything in your place. Make us, Lord, to flourish. And that we know that can only happen, Lord, as we abide in you. And so we pray that we might do that. Help us, Lord Jesus, to honor you above all. In your holy name we pray. Amen.